And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it's your first time, we'd like to welcome you to The Pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine, because it's a heck of a lot easier that way. So, Dr. John, today we are going to continue our Antiquities of Medicine series. Um, And since we conquered the Greeks last episode, we will focus on the medical contributions of the Roman Empire today. Going antiquing again. Hot damn. Hot damn. Um, Now, so even though this is a part B technically, you don't need to go in order. Uh, It's kind of like an old record or a cassette tape, you know, side A, side B, doesn't matter which side you groove to first, as long as you're grooving. That's blasphemy. They made the albums be listened to in a specific order, side A, side B. You don't know what you're talking about, Dr. Guy. Gosh. I actually prefer to listen to all my records backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like making the record move backwards. Yeah. Hear all the satanic chatting. Bunch of candles. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about the Romans, the uh, the Olive Garden of Antiquities. Let's do it, man. Oh, by the way, what are you drinking tonight? Um, I am drinking uh, water. What wow. are you drinking? I thought it'd be fun to open up our conversation with like a nice session of like, this is the adult beverage that I'm consuming as I record this educational, maybe occasionally funny podcast, but You've kind of crushed that because yeah. you're drinking water. Yeah, and an adult beverage because I'm an adult. I can't right. believe you're still drinking beer. God. It's the season for beer, though. I'm joking with you. <laughs> of course, I'm and I have a to, beer. What I'm kind a, of beer are you drinking? I'm drinking a session lager. I used to think those were pronounced saison. <laughs> this, the, there are some saisons out there, but this is the, the brand is called Session. Yeah. By full sale. Out of uh, the West Coast somewhere. What so you, you want to know? Let me first tell you a sad story before I lead into that. So in the uh, the great state of Georgia, um, I've discovered that they have no idea what pumpkin beer is. Mm. And like I said, I'm a seasonal drinker. In the fall, I like a good pumpkin beer. I move into the winter. I darken it up a little bit. We get some holiday lagers. That's kind of how I roll. Lager might not actually be the right word for it, but... <laughs> Something coffee-esque, you like your, the colder it gets. You like your pumpkin beer with your pumpkin spice latte? I don't like a pumpkin spice latte, and that's what's kind of confusing about this. But okay. like the sad thing is here, so you cannot get pumpkin beer. The only option I've discovered, you can get Sam Adams Oktoberfest, and that's about as close as you can get to something fall harvest-ish, um, is Blue Moon Harvest Pumpkin Wheat. That's it. I mean, it's like going to McDonald's for a hamburger instead of some like, boutique <laughs> meat market. I don't know. It's a little disappointing. Yeah. But it actually tastes pretty good. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying your boutique meat market beer. It's like a pumpkin spice beer. <laughs> pumpkin spice latte of pumpkin beers. Yeah, my favorite pumpkin beer is uh, they make one Pumpkin. Yeah. Oh, pumpkin. That's pumpkin, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Shipyard makes a good one. I like it too. I'm glad that we uh, got that out of the way. All right, so the let's get started then. The Roman era of Greek history began with the Greek defeat in the Battle of Corneth in 146 BC. Now, however, despite the progressive control over mainland Greece, 
definitive Roman occupation of Greece wasn't established until the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. Oh, by the way, I should go ahead and tell you I'm completely shooting from the hip all episode long. Sometimes I do a little uh, pregame preparation to learn the pronunciation of some of these names. Not the case tonight. (laughs) (laughs) My blue moon pumpkin spices inspired me. Uh You're feeling confident. (laughs) Going crazy. Um, In the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, in which Octavian, a.k.a. Augustus, defeated Cleopatra VII, the Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, and her lover, which I feel like is the appropriate pronunciation of that word every time, um, Mark Antony, a statesman and Roman general. Hmm. So uh, the relationship between Greek and Roman civilizations and the field of medicine is somewhat complicated, um, and it's not going to be completely explored today. But what should be appreciated is the fact that life in Greece was very much the same after Roman occupation as it was previously, except for the fact that everyone was now a Roman slave. It was exactly the same. Mm. But uh, the relationship was unique with consideration of the fact that despite being the occupying army, Roman culture had very much been influenced by the Greeks. And hence, this would be kind of a a similar equivalent to the United States revolting, not only in the colonies, but simultaneously proceeding to overthrow the English government across the pond. So you could say that the subsequent power dynamic was a bit touch and go, um, you know, and the the pupil is now the master kind of way because, well, uh, the Greeks were, like I said before, now Roman slaves. So interesting. Uh, (laughs) Uh, It was generally thought that when Rome conquered Greece, in Rome, both medicine and surgery were poorly respected careers. At the time, most of the doctors were Greek, as the profession of medicine was more highly regarded in Greece than in Rome. And Romans, at the time, despised Greeks, and a Roman citizen considered a doctor's work well beneath him. Mm. Hurtful. So, um, So physicians were basically craftsmen. Uh, If successful, they often enjoyed renown amongst their patients, uh, but were certainly not considered part of the socio-political elite. And many doctors were actually just freed Greek slaves. Uh, These physicians often struggled to get by. They were hampered by low success rates because, I mean, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know what they didn't know, I guess you could say. And Then you had the prejudice of the Roman population who were both skeptical and critical of doctors in general as a result of the fact that they didn't like the Greeks and the doctors didn't know what the hell they were doing. Further complicating this delicate relationship was the fact that there were no medical licensing boards. Hence, anyone could essentially call themselves a doctor. If they treated patients successfully, they would attract more customers. If they failed, eh, they simply found another career. (laughs) Or another town. Yeah, (laughs) that probably happens today still. Uh If you were a patient in ancient Rome, it was basically medical Russian roulette, or maybe maybe I should say Roman roulette. (gasps) Ba-doom. Crushing it. Um, So one Roman scholar joked, and I do love this, until recently, Dalius was a doctor. Now he is an undertaker. He is still doing as an undertaker what he used to do as a doctor. I don't know what I don't know what accent that was. I actually like to make up accents as we go along. You can't like bring up an Italian one like hey Until, Until recently, recently. Darius was a doctor. Now he's an undertaker. 
<laughs> Pass the pasta. Oh. We're both great at accents, by the way. We are. That could be a second career. Hey, Tony Fauci. Uh, so the gradual organization of medical study would eventually lead to improved social position for the doctor. And eventually in 46 BC, Julius Caesar granted the rights of Roman citizenship to all physicians. Hmm. So this strategic move, again, the Roman citizenship for doctors, wasn't established out of the kindness of great Julius Caesar's heart. Instead, it was likely driven out of the need of physicians backslash surgeons for the Roman army. Of course, there was a lot of bludgeoning happening around this time, and someone needed to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Mm. Supply and demand, my friend. (laughs) Oh, experts here in uh, Roman economics. So this action and the increasing number of serious and honest practitioners improved the social standing and dignity of the practice of medicine. Still, medicine was considered a career that, uh, as Cicero describes, it is commendable to those who rank and condition is suitable for such employment, aka meaning Romans of status would never consider training to become a physician. But it was otherwise a good profession if you came from a less bougie origin. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a Greek slave anymore, right? You can be a Roman citizen. That seems like right. a upward plus upward mobility. Moving on up. <laughs> Fortunately for those physicians who, with increasing skill, began to acquire wealth and prestige, they became more accepted into Roman patrician society. They became more accepted into Roman patrician society. Uh, Many of the medical advancements of the Roman Empire were the result of the expanding empire itself and the establishment of trading contacts with both Egypt and a little place I like to call Mesopotamia, um, both of whom managed to document and preserve their medical teachings and theories. Uh, Since medicine was almost entirely practiced by the Greeks, scientific method and observation began with the Greeks and was taught to newly aspiring Russian, or sorry, Russian, Roman physicians through mentorship, apprenticeship, and eventually through a formal education. So, war. (laughs) What is it good for? We're going to go there? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. As we said before, it may be the greatest contributor to the medical advancement in ancient Greek and Rome. As touched upon during our episode covering the direct contributions of the Greek empire on medicine, aka last episode, you don't have to go too far to find it. It's there. Um, A variety of wounds and amputations caused by all manner of violence would provide aspiring physicians with practical information and experience that would later be applied away from the battlefields. So within the Roman army, a medical corps was established and many advancements were made on the tales of conquest and warfare. Battlefield medicine in the Roman army was remarkably advanced. The instruments used to apply the trade were surprisingly similar to those used by surgeons as recently as the 19th and 20th centuries. For example, catheters. Hmm. Although, what were they making those catheters? I I mean, like bamboo? That feel oh my uh, gosh! Like I mean, what are we, like they basically had you wood put that and, under people's fingernails to torture them. Can you yeah. imagine shoving a bamboo shoot in someone's urethra? Like they had like wood, stone, and they were made of like steel or bronze types of metal to work with. Yeah, None of metal. Which I'm pretty great. sure they were metal. Oh god! Well, I mean, for what it's worth, we use metal dilators for the urethra today. So 
maybe not as terrible as it sounds. <laughs> that as sounds as terrible. <laughs> less terrible for a female patient than a male patient. <laughs> Navigating that prostate prostate blind might have been an issue back then. Um, scalpels. They were made of steel or bronze. Um, grasping forceps. Bone forceps. Bone levers, um, which we talked about last episode. And, um, they utilize cautery. Great way to make bleeding stop. Uh, arterial clamps, tourniquets, cross-bladed scissors, the surgical sewing needle, mm. and everyone's favorite instrument until probably 1930, the surgical saw. <laughs> Got to cut those limbs off. Yeah, all this sounds so dark. <laughs> <laughs> Better than doing nothing, right? Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I'll tell you what, it must have been pretty pressure-free. I, actually, I was going to say it's pressure-free to practice medicine back there, but I'm pretty sure we talked about the fact before that the laws against doctors were like, if you killed somebody while you were trying to treat them and that individual wasn't a slave, you basically could be like imprisoned or killed yourself. Yeah. Oh, man. And if, you, if it was a slave that you killed while you were trying to help them, I think you had to replace the slave. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, or just somebody's family could kill you. They'd be like, well, yeah. whatever. So basically, uh, there's always stress in medicine until probably the Middle Ages. Then it may be good stress for you again. <laughs> yeah, those you could do whatever you wanted. Though. Those plague doctors had it easy. <laughs> Nobody could see their face. You had no idea who they were. Yeah. Everybody bought that costume at the party shop and went out and treated people. Um, <laughs> so while these ancient surgeons had little appreciation for germs and bacteria, which might be a problem, uh, they did learn the importance of boiling their surgical instruments before use. Now, I'm not sure who figured that one out, but kudos to them. Uh, field surgeons would often be equipped with opium for pain control and sedation, as well as henbane seeds, to con uh, which contain scopolamine. Um, and scopolamine is obviously an uh, anti-emetic. Um, you could treat wounds with acetum, which is made from vinegar or fermented wine. Um, as they understood that water could be contaminated. So acetum was an effective antiseptic that would prevent a variety of infections associated with superficial wounds from combat and wounds that, if not treated, could potentially become fatal despite their unimpressive appearance. Now, before you doomsday preppers out there begin experimenting with home distilled uh, craft acetum, um, it should be noted that the application of acetum to the wound was excruciatingly painful for the patient. So. Oof. Yeah. Um, surgeons would recommend that broken tissue be cleansed of pus and allowed to drain. They would stop bleeding with compression and the use of tourniquets. For orthopedic injuries such as fractures, surgeons developed instruments or utilized those previously designed by the Greeks, as said before, such as bone levers that would allow a restoration of normal position and devices used to stretch the site to promote healing and setting to avoid shortening of the bone and prevent a limp. Nothing worse than an antiquity limp. Didn't uh, like Kennedy have a one leg was shorter than the other, and that's kind of why he walked the way he walked. Was it from a poorly healed fracture or? I, I think it was break. Yeah, I'm gonna look this up. Keep going. Do it. Worth a Google. Permanent physicians were appointed to the Roman legions as the Roman Empire grew. And during Julius Caesar's time, systematic care of the wounded became common practice and military hospitals were established. And actually, the world's first hospitals were initially reserved for the likes of slaves and soldiers alone. Uh, the expansion of the Roman Empire beyond the Italian peninsula meant the wounded soldiers could no longer be cared for in private homes. 
valetudinarium or hospitals, uh, hence were established. And these field hospitals began as tent encampments, but they would progress into permanent facilities often built along busy roads and the outer fortifications of the Roman strongholds. Archaeological study of ancient Roman military encampments demonstrates that Roman military physicians were also astute enough to direct generals to build the military encampments away from mosquito-infested swamps and to dig rudimentary latrines remote from the living and dining quarters. Once again, pooping away from where you sleep and eat, always a good idea. (laughs) Always. Public health slash medicine 101. It should be noted that much of the early medical advancements gained during the rise of the Roman Empire were provided only to soldiers and slaves. Um, Medical care for the poor was virtually non-existent, hence they were kind of left to rely primarily on spiritual aid. Spiritual. Talismans. Yes. <laughs> Art therapy. <laughs> oh, your leg's been chopped off. Well, here are some colored pencils and a rock for you to draw on. We'll touch base in a week. Yeah. But JFK's leg, uh, FYI, was uh, three quarters of an inch shorter than his right leg. That is something I did not know. Yeah. The more you know. Yeah. yeah. I feel educated. I'm glad Fact. I can add one thing to the millions of facts that you throw at me and the listeners every week that factoid gave me a little bit of a headache and i think it's because my brain is growing (laughs) i'm pretty sure that's not the direction that that's going (laughs) your brain is shrinking you're losing that white matter your bridging veins are stretching out you're just one minor fall away from a subdural um So in the absence of formal qualifications or certification, as said before, all manners of life could present themselves as healers, drug sellers, root cutters, midwives, surgeons. They all offered medical advice and provided treatment to ailing individuals that were willing to pay. Um, In ancient Greece or Rome, for that matter, initially medical training took on the form of an apprenticeship at first, and uh, that would occur with an established doctor. And the individual also occasionally had the opportunity to attend public anatomy demonstrations or lectures. Now, remember, they couldn't really do a lot of dissections back then, but if a gladiator happened to die, um, (laughs) you can point things out without getting too invasive. Were the... The, the Light light probing. Light probing was acceptable. So doing autopsies was forbidden? Right, unless you were those uh, who were boys from last episode... In Alexandria, Greece, that basically had a, a plethora oh, yeah. of cadavers donated to it. Dead bodies everywhere that those guys were. Erostratus. Yeah. But yeah, they, well, I guess all of them weren't dead. Some of them were just criminals that they killed while they were <laughs> in the process of autopsying them. They did like a pre mortem autopsy. So the aforementioned Roman. Emperor Augustus, uh, the emperor previously known as Octavian, um, who ruled from 27 BC to 14 um, AD, would establish the first formalized medical education in Rome. Now, Greeks, we said last episode, had obviously established uh, medical schools long before the Romans. In fact, the first medical school opened in Snidus um, in 700 BC. So basically, they had like a 600 and <laughs> 670 year head start on the Romans. Anyway, Augustus understood that a healthy legion was a winning legion. All comes back to the military. It sounds like, so, a, like something you'd say in a locker room. Um, so he created a military medical academy with the hopes of raising the professionalism and quality of the military surgeons. 
I don't know why the thought of professionalism makes me laugh at that time. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, each uh, physician would have to successfully pass or complete the structured education in order to apply their trade. Now, the Roman Empire also contributed several medications and various treatments to support the field of medicine. Similar to the Greeks, a healthy diet was central to the Roman health, and uh, the avoidance of excess was paramount, but rarely followed. Um, minimal compliance with that recommendation. And so when diet alone did not prevent illness, medications, phlebotomy, cautery, and surgery were used. Um, Some examples of some of the pharmacological interventions uh, the Romans came up with. Fennel, um, they used that to cure painful urination, expel menstrual flow, stop bowel discharge, bring out breast milk, and break down kidney stones. For a second, I was reading this and I thought it said, bring out beast milk. And I was like, what the shit is that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do you got for 11 years of medical training here? Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) beast milk. It's like a competitor to muscle milk. I know. I feel like (laughs) bodybuilders drink breast milk these days to get like an edge up on the competition. Yeah. (laughs) So like you might be able to market that as beast milk to them. Beast milk. Drink your beast milk now. Ah! All right. <laughs> so rhubarb, uh, that would be used to treat flatulence, convulsions, internal disorders of the stomach, the spleen, the liver, the kidneys, and the womb. Treatment for sciatica, asthma, rickets, and dysentery. Licorice calms the stomach, still does today, as well as the bladder, kidney, and liver disorders. Aloe was used to heal wounds. It could be applied dry, and it also could be used to remove boils or treat boils just in general. You know right now that uh, aloe is being used as like a complementary alternative medication for people that have interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome because it's a kind of anti-inflammatory that's thought to coat the bladder. Strange how this stuff stays in, stays in the medical uh, pharmacopoeia. <laughs> I just love that. Like It must have been so nice to be a... Uh, physician back in the day be like all right i've got these four things fennel <laughs> rhubarb licorice aloe and each one of them treats 18 different conditions <laughs> i'm just trying to think of a medication that we use wonder drug yeah nowadays that like treats eight different things it's like one drug one treatment or you know <laughs> one drug one disease or process that you're trying to improve I'm trying to think of like a medication that we would use that would have like 18 curative properties. Oh, God. Hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great at crushing that coronavirus. <laughs> Bathing that stuff. Uh-huh. And then it also does a great job with malaria. Uh-huh. Um, also, there is spirea. spirea. Um, it was an acid from the willow tree or shrub bark and leaves and it's used to treat pain um and basically it's salicylic acid of aspirin today so the romans came up with aspirin so would you like to hear some medical procedures and treatments of antiquity lay it on me doctor right. i think these will be described by cor uh cornelius celsus who was a a famous encyclopedist of the day i don't know any famous encyclopedist of today celsus was one of antiquity. And um, so he describes abscess drainage, 
So he said the surgeon should make a linear incision and afterwards remove all of the affected skin above the topmost of the pus cavity. The surgeon is then cautioned to avoid too many or too large an incision as a small incision is best, but large enough in number and size to bring the necessary relief. Further, the cut should be made to vent the deepest portion of the cavity to allow continued drainage from the bottom of the cavity and avoid reaccumulation of pus. For disinfection, Celsus recommends infusion of honey into the abscess. Ooh. It's got antibacterial components, so not quite insane. Also, Although, lots of sugar. Probably, <laughs> and I bet bears chase them everywhere. Yep. <laughs> so modern medicine follows virtually an identical approach today with the incision and drainage of an abscess uh, at the site of maximum tenderness. You remove any involved or dead skin or tissue, any necrotic tissue, um, to be sure to allow continued drainage of the abscess as well. Um, you need to make the incision uh, wide enough. Surprisingly, even the honey, like I just said, has been studied as an antioxidant, antibacterial agent in labs today and has been shown to slow the growth of staph and pseudomonas. And it's been incorporated into some wound coverings or dressings, usually sold at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> Next to the kombucha. <laughs> it's important to me that you know that it's pronounced kombucha. <laughs> I was about to say kombucha, but I was like, that can't be right. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> mm -hmm. So abdominal laparotomy. This is also impressive. Also described by Celsus. So the treatment and evaluation of abdominal stab wounds, because like we said before, there was a plethora of sharp things being shoved into people's abdomens in Greek and Roman times. Um, sometimes when the abdomen is penetrated by a stab of some sort, um, it follows that the intestines may fall out. Um, when this occurs, <laughs> we must first examine whether they are injured or uninjured and whether proper color persists. The large intestine can be sutured, not with any certain assurance but because doubtful hope is better than certain despair. <laughs> Put that in a consent form. <laughs> Occasionally it heals up. If any part of the intestine is black or pallid, all medical aid is in vain. If the initial abdominal wound is too small or too narrow uh, to return all of the intestines back into their peritoneal home, it should be widened sufficiently. During the evaluation process, if the intestines become too dry, they should be bathed in water. An assistant should separate the wound margins by hand using two hooks inserted into the inner membrane, and the intestines should then be replaced. Oh Stitching <laughs> of the inner membrane only or the skin is not sufficient. That's how you get a hernia. What did they do for anesthetics back then? Do you know? I think they just gave him a stick and a lot of wine. Oh my God. And olive oil. <laughs> they greased him up in olive oil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot. It's kind of one of those, take the pain. Yeah. Can you imagine two hooks mobilizing your bowel while you're awake yeah. and just drunk? Or the mobilizing the abdominal cavity so you could oh, sorry. push yeah. the bowel back in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so both layers had to be closed stitch because uh, they can be broken more easily. Uh, with abdominal movement because of the tension. Yeah, no. So 
the way that they managed uh, like an abdominal injury, though, is exactly what you would do today. Um, essentially, you can sew the large intestine because it's large enough in caliber that it's not going to um, impair the flow of stool uh, by narrowing it. Obviously, if the bowel was already dead and necrotic, they didn't have the, the means to do much for it. So that individual probably died of sepsis or whatever it was that killed him off pretty quickly then. Otherwise, you know, when you close the abdominal wall, you need to close it, including both the fascia and the skin to avoid herniation or wound breakdown. So, I mean, there were things that they obviously learned or realized, I'm sure, by trial and error. I, I would assume the first guy that had his bowel stuffed back into his belly did not survive. <laughs> Maybe the the 100th, the the 101st did a little Uh, bit better. Um, How many times do you have to do something before you're considered an expert? I mean, if you just kill 100 people or 1,000 people, I don't know if that makes you an expert. See, like there's surgeons running around the battlefield. Here's another one. Let's try it again. (laughs) Make it till you make it. Put a little red flag next to all the ones whose intestines are hanging out. Oh, God. We're going to let Achilles do all those to get really good at it. So kind of moving on, um, during antiquity, the Roman Empire, a rough concept of contagion was developed. And there was no concept of germs or how illness truly spread, but they were aware of the fact that many diseases such as the plague were highly infectious. Um, There were many documented occurrences of plagues in classical in the classical world. And as a result, Greek and Roman civilizations worked to protect themselves through improved sanitation and the introduction and the practice of quarantine. So the sick would be ordered to remain home and the city gates would often be shuttered to prevent merchants, travelers, or traders from entering the city wall um, during times of massive outbreaks. These strategies would have served future civilizations well, including the people of the Middle Ages during the Black Death, But unfortunately, many of the advancements of the ancient Rome were lost with the fall of the empire. Hence, medicine took multiple steps back as civilization plunged into the dark and middle ages. The history of quarantine. Do you know where we get that term from? Have we talked about that before? Well, (laughs) we talked about the term Trentino with the Black Plague in Italy. Yeah. But if you've got something else. Quaranta Giorino, which means 40 days. Ships arriving in Venice from infected ports were required to sit at anchor for 40 days before landing. That's right. I think we talked about that, right? And there was like, yeah, we did. It was on the the Black Plague. Yeah, Yeah, we definitely discussed it. Quaranta giorni. (laughs) Giorni. (laughs) Buongiorno. (laughs) Another thing that the the Romans like to throw into their um, the mix was their interpretation of dreams. And that was promoted by practicing physicians pretty frequently back in the day. The unique interpretation of the patient's dreams would then determine what treatment was appropriate. This therapeutic technique required the physician to know the patient well, to be familiar with various aspects of the patient's life, their food consumption, their sleep patterns, how much they drank, any injuries, if their belly button was an outie or an innie. (laughs) Crucial. Yes. Um, They would then incorporate all of their findings, considerations into the treatment meant to reestablish equilibrium of the patient's humors. Um, And the more chaotic the patient's dream, the more ill the patient obviously was. (laughs) 
we're talking about yeah. cranberry juice or something right now. That's what we're talking about dreams. <laughs> yeah. No, well played. Kind of makes me want to sip on my blue moon pumpkin spice beer. <laughs> <laughs> put a little put a little dash of cranberry juice in there. Um, so we'll kind of round things out or end things talking about some of the uh, practitioners and medical scholars of Roman antiquity. All right. So first we've got Galen. Um, and although he was a Greek physician by birth, his contributions to the field of medicine primarily followed Roman conquests and rule. And hence, we are choosing to discuss him during the Roman episode rather than the previous Greek episode. And also, we ran out of time. Um, <laughs> Most importantly. Yeah. So Galen began studying medicine at the sweet old age of 15 um, and completed his education at the age of 28. Sounds about right. Um, Galen dissected animals, primarily monkeys and pigs, to learn about the human body. Similar. Um, <laughs> but his uh, first job as a physician was treating maimed and wounded gladiators. It was an opportunity that may have taught him more about uh, more practical knowledge than any other educational experience. He would later treat the wealthy in Rome and become the court physician to Marcus Aurelius. He is credited with performing many audacious operations, including brain and eye surgeries. Uh, many of his procedures were not attempted again for centuries. Now, obviously, it's unclear if the outcome of said uh, surgeries played a role in their delayed reenactment. But <laughs> He broke the game. He broke the game. Um, he was influenced by the then-current Hippocrates theory of humorism. His medical works were deemed the authority well into the Middle Ages, and his physiologic model of the human body became the standard of medieval physician anatomy curriculum based off of monkeys and pigs, um, despite his not having dissected a human body, um, as the processes, like we said before, were banned in Roman societies. Now, Glenn would encourage his students to evaluate the bodies of dead gladiators to become more familiar with true human anatomy. Most of his anatomical teachings, however, were later discredited with the dissection of a human body. Amazing how that happens um, and subsequent publications. But that wasn't until the 16th century or the 1500s. So they, they stood for quite a while. Um, <laughs> one of his most well-known public experiments was that of the quote-unquote squealing pig um, in which a pig was dissected alive as it lay squealing. I love the term public experiments. It's like a David Blaine <laughs> stunt or something. What do you call this one? I call it the squealing pig. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Watch this. You'll see. <laughs> Give me a second. Um, so Galen would then transect the laryngeal nerve and the piglet would suddenly become silent despite all of its limbs thrashing about. Oh. Yeah, kind of sad. Um, Peta is not a fan. No. <laughs> Slightly worse than training monkeys to get coconuts from trees. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, this was a discovery that was initially made accidentally, but one of the many findings that allowed Glenn to make important anatomic observations on the cranial and spinal nerves. Now, Glenn believed there was no distinction between the mental and the physical or the mind and body. He also developed methods to approach and treat psychological problems. His teachings described how to provide counsel to those with psychological issues. Um, those teachings would become the rough origins of psychotherapy and be included 
uh, and included recommendations on counseling the patient to divulge their deepest secrets and passions to eventually cure them of their mental deficiencies. This, according to Galan, obviously required a leading therapist that was male, um, preferably older and wiser than the patient, and free from the control of the passions, which were thought to be the source of the problems and those people that those people experience. Uh, passions were emotions: envy, anger, violence, lust, sadness, grief, fear, and hate. Etc. For etc. <laughs> um, next is Asclepiades. So. The dude Asclepiades moved to Rome in the first century BC. That'd be kind of fun to be alive during the first century. First century BC, first century AD. That's kind of an impressive span, right? I don't think um, if you were born in the first century BC, you knew you were in the first century BC. <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point you figured it out. <laughs> no. You don't think the disciples were like, this is obviously no. Yeah, when the Romans were crucifying Christ, like, <laughs> and this is happening at 32 AD or zero AD. Yeah. On it right here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, his knowledge of medicine allowed him to flourish as a physician, and he was known as a close confidant to the senator Cicero. Um, so he strongly believed in hot and cold baths as a remedy for illness and avoided infliction of pain upon his patients during his therapies. Um, he was the first physician in Rome to document and utilize massage therapy, and he believed in the use of wine and music to cure headaches and induce sedation. What is that uh, dude that's all about the cold bath therapy in the Netherlands? Oh, I don't know, but there was... Uh... Who was the dude? Uh, he was actually one of the founding fathers of the United States. Is it Benjamin Rush? He was like a founding father of the U.S., signed the Constitution, and he was like a psychiatrist. And he basically was a big believer in like hydrotherapy for psychiatric patients or dumping cold water on their heads <laughs> to slow down blood flow or something to their to the brain. Yeah. Oh no, there's like a there's a modern day guy that that's like his whole thing is like breathing techniques and then uh cold baths. Yeah. <sighs> Makes me want to curl up with a good book and a nice ice cold bath. Some bubbles. <laughs> nice ice cold bubble bath. <laughs> <laughs> sounds miserable. Oh man, so here, we're going to talk about uh, Cornelius Celsus, the Roman nobleman and encyclopedist previously mentioned. Um, he was alive from 25 BC to uh, 50 AD, and he composed a general encyclopedia that included an eight-volume compendium of medicine called De Medicina, and that included two distinct books describing surgical procedures and practices of the time. Um, we talked about two previously regarding the abscess and also abdominal wound. And uh, Celsus, his publication was considered the most significant collection of medical writings since Hippocrates Corpus. Uh, the teachings of this collection were largely lost and forgotten, as would be most of the medical literature and knowledge, um, after the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and it wasn't until Pope Nicholas V rediscovered the work that it was reprinted in 1478 AD, uh, becoming the first medical and surgical book to be printed. And otherwise, very little is known about Cornelius Celsus because, well, he was an encyclopedist. And who gives a damn? And Pope 
Pope Nicholas V was just like, oh, hey. <laughs> In the Pope's uh, closet. And I found this pretty cool book. <laughs> Sitting on the back of the toilet seat. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, fewer of y'all a... would die, or less of y'all would die if uh, you use some of these techniques. Uh, let's be honest, the Catholic Church was uh, keeping the common man down by not sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> so one way to maintain control. Uh-huh. Um, all right, so Dioscorides, a Greek-born first-century physician, pharmacologist, botanist, and a Roman army surgeon authored an encyclopedia of medicinal substances commonly known as the De Materia Medica. And this work did not delve into medical theory or explanation of any pathogenesis, but rather described the uses and actions of some 600 substances based on empirical observation, unlike other works of classical antiquity. Dioscorides' manuscript was never out of publication, and it actually formed the basis of Western pharmacopoeia through the 19th century, um, a true testament to the efficacy of the medicines he described. This is like the first pharmacist. (laughs) Nerd. What did Dioscorides know about CBD, buddy? (laughs) No, that's a panacea. There you go. That's that's your medication that fixes everything, according to those who... (laughs) <laughs> who uh, promoted uh, honey CBD that's all you need they've got some good CBD at the gas station down the street from our house <laughs> that's mess doctor yeah. high quality um, so some pretty impressive contributions right right um, unfortunately like we said before despite all of these medical advancements um, with the exception of Dioscorides uh, uh, pharmacopoeia After 400 AD, the study and practice of medicine in the Western Roman Empire went into deep, deep decline. Medical services were still provided, but they were mainly rudimentary with palliative intent. Many of the writings of Hippocrates and Galen were lost with the fall of the Roman Empire. And the Dark Ages were a somewhat humbling time to be a doctor. Um, And it wouldn't be until the Renaissance that the West became increasingly exposed to the Byzantine Empire and their appreciation of the ancient medicine um, of antiquity, uh, and hence began to grow anew. Still, most historians state that it wasn't until the 12th century Renaissance, during which new translations coming from Muslim and Jewish sources in Spain, along with the flood of resources identified after the fall of Constantinople in the 15th century, Uh, did Western Europe fully recover its acquaintance with classical antiquity and the medical contributions that benefited society long ago? That's the end. The end. Fin. What was that? Is it Finn? Finn. Finn? Does that mean the end? Say it all like the uh, art house movies. Fin. This is the end. It's another Doors song. Oh, God, the Doors. I hate the Doors. It's like a carnival music. Jim Morrison. What a, uh, many there are a few. <laughs> probably going to offend many people. I feel like there's a few. <laughs> there's a few like musicians of antiquity that I think are way overrated. Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, are right there. <laughs> <laughs> musicians of antiquity. <laughs> but you're talking about the seventies. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Thanks for walking us through that, Doctor Guy. Super interesting. Um, 
you know, I mean, they they did the best that they could with uh, what they had to work with. You know, well, you're quite you're welcome. You know, in the words of uh, Chick Fil A and the Ritz Carlton, it's been my pleasure, Doctor John, to walk you through this. That's what Chick Fil A says. It's, it's, my my, pleasure. it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Let's say it's our pleasure to everything. Okay. It's my pleasure. Can I have some more honey mustard? It's my pleasure. I'm not that familiar. Where's with the bathroom? Food. It's my pleasure. Ooh, um, did you ever try that uh, spicy chicken sandwich from Popeyes? No. Oh, God, you gotta I, I don't indulge in a lot of the, the faster foods. Yeah. Chick fil A is the exception because I can force feed that to our kids. Oh, yeah. And don't feel 100% guilty about it. <laughs> Just you, 75%. Wash it down with some fennel and rhubarb. That's right. <laughs> um, well, good. I, you know, I hope you guys, I hope everyone out there learned something today. I feel like I learned a little bit. Dr. John taught me about John F. Kennedy's short foot or leg. Leg, yeah. Yeah, he had to get a, he had like a, a lift on that side. You know what? I'm glad. Yeah, me and him both using lifts. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, learned a little bit. Hopefully you guys learned a little bit. Like always, we hope we grew at least one or two more brain cells than we killed off today. If you get really, really bored out there, um, especially with this kind of pandemic upswing, I know people are going to be socially stuck at home again in some countries. Why don't you leave us a review? Um, I think that would be fascinating. Rate us on uh, iTunes. Or uh, do it. Spotify. Smash Even that if subscribe it sucks. button. I mean, it'd be better if you left us a good one. Um, yeah. But, you know, feel free to do it. It's a free world. <laughs> well, yeah. Exercise. Exercise your right, your right to vote. <laughs> to vote. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Thanks for listening, um, y'all. And um, yeah, tell a, tell a friend. Smash that subscribe button and uh, stay healthy. Yeah. Be safe out there, guys. Cheers. Cheers.